Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. Well, God loves you and I as much as He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. God loves you and I as much as He loves Jesus Christ. I want to pause here and just let that sink in for a little bit. And your initial thoughts that ran through your mind when you heard me say this will reveal much about your faith. Did you think, I am totally unworthy of this? How could a holy God love a wretched sinner like me? Or did you think, I know God loves me, but I don't know if he loves me that much? Or did you think, on some level, I'm a pretty good person, so this makes sense. So think about that. What was your initial, initial thought to that statement? Now you might ask, where did, you, where did I get that statement? Who says God loves us as much as he loves the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ, that's who. In John 17, 23, Jesus prays to the Father for believers to be perfectly united in their faith in God. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And then three verses later, Jesus finishes his prayer by saying he will continue to make the Father's name known to believers for this reason, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Jesus deserves God's perfect love. We deserve God's perfect wrath. Instead, he loves us with the same overwhelming, mind-boggling, unending, pure love that exists within the triune God, within the, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Try to make sense of that, that he loves us the same as he loves the Lord Jesus. Listen to how uh, a theologian named James M. Hamilton, Jr., he summarizes this profound truth. Hamilton writes, and it should be up on the monitor, what an unexpected grace from God that he would love us just as he loves Jesus. Those who experience such love cannot but be transformed by it. And those who experience such transformation will be noticed by the world. The world, in turn, will be convinced that God sent Jesus because of the transforming love of God they observe, creating unity among the people of God. In John 17, we read of this and other deep truths. And this morning, we're going to dig in there uh, into John 17 and, and try to mine some of these gems. And remember last week, we introduced what is known as the high priestly prayer. This is John 17. Jesus is our eternal high priest. 
He goes between us as the and the Father. Jesus is our mediator. So we can stand before a holy God on the day of judgment and not be cast into hell because of our, our dirty, filthy sin. Instead, God sees Jesus, his righteousness in us, and he welcomes us into heaven. And this brings the Son and the Father and us glory. And uh, as we discussed last week, all of John 17 is a prayer. It's a prayer from Jesus to his Father, amazingly rich. And in it, he shows that his own glory, the, the glo his own glory, Jesus's, the glory of the Father and the glory of us are all wrapped up in his love for us. We are the source of glory. God is. And this glory stems from his sacrifice. Jesus humbled himself, came to earth to teach, tell, and display who God is. And Jesus is the only mediator between man, between us and God, who can grant salvation from sin and bestow everlasting life. And incredibly, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just come and do his thing and leave, and now we're on our own. It may seem like that, but that's not the case. Jesus continues to intercede for us. I am praying for them, meaning believers, John, Jesus says in John 17, 9. Jesus is interceding between us and the Father, even now. It's kind of like, no, I won't use this analogy. It, it falls short. But Jesus prays for us because he knows two key things about God and his people. One, God is love, and he also has wrath for sin. And two, we are easily deceived and pulled away by Satan. On the first one, God is love, and he also has wrath against sin. I will tell you, he is never one or the other. Both are true at all times. God doesn't just love his people at times and not at other times. He is love. It is God's character and his nature. Everything he does is a loving move, whether it feels like it to us or not. God is never not loving. He doesn't set aside his love. He can't because it's who he is. And the same thing can be said of God's justice. It is who he is. He is a God of justice. We know this. Wrongdoing should be punished. It must be punished. Look, as a society, we punish wrongdoing in our court system. How much more must a righteous, holy God punish sin? He cannot turn a blind eye to it. That would be unjust. And God is just at all times, as he is love at all times. And so God, being perfectly holy and righteous, has no sin and he can have no sin in his presence. Therefore, we do have a problem. That problem, as we know, it is our sin. And we aren't allowed into God's kingdom because of our sin. Except, God chose to make a way. He sent a mediator. This mediator, Jesus, who is perfect and without sin, 
And then we get credit for his sinlessness when we trust in the sacrifice he made for us. When we trust in his work on the cross and his resurrection and his promise of a right standing before God. And so this leads to three key aspects of John 17 that I want to highlight today. And as you read through the 26 verses of John 17, and I encourage you on your own, please read John 17. Take your time with it. Dive deeply into it. You'll realize it is inexhaustible. You can't go there too often or meditate on it too deeply. And so because of that, there is no way I will be able to cover it in the depth that it des deserves here today, um, or even in two messages, or 20 messages, or beyond that. But we can take a look at a few broad areas uh, that Jesus emph emphasizes in this prayer. And the first one of these is election. Jesus mentions, mentions the doctrine of election five times. And this doctrine, if, if you aren't sure, it means that God in His grace and in His mercy chooses to save some sinners and grant them eternal life in His kingdom. In other words, God elects people for salvation. Not all, not all only those whom He chooses, only those whom He elects. So let's look at these five verses that Jesus brings us to show us the doctrine of election. First, Jesus prays that he will give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Speaking of the Father, all the people whom the Father has given him in verse 2. In verse 6, Jesus refers to the people whom you gave me. And then he reiterates this to the Father, that you gave them to me. In verse 9, Jesus says he is praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then in verse 24, Jesus prays that the people whom you have given me will see his glory in heaven. It's unmistakable, this doctrine of election. In Ephesians 1, we are told believers were chosen before the foundation of the world. You and I, as true believers, all true believers, were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. And in John 3, we're told that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And so I will not go into too much depth in the doctrine of election here, uh, but let me be clear, the Bible teaches that God has chosen those whom he saves and that we are responsible for choosing him. How can both be true? This is a doctrine that has divided many in the church. And because it's so difficult, actually, for, to, for us to wrap our minds around, um, it's really easy to go maybe swing a little too far in either direction. And as we'll discuss later, later God wants believers to have perfect unity in their faith. So dividing over this issue is not the will of God. We can respectfully come to different conclusions, yet we cannot let this divide us. 
In my humble view, very humble, the best conclusion is that we cannot fully reconcile how the two fit together. Scripture overwhelmingly speaks of God's choosing, God's electing, God's predestining His people to be His chosen ones. I just gave you five direct quotes from Jesus that the disciples then and now already belong to the Father and Jesus, or before Jesus ever comes to earth. So I believe in the doctrine of election. The Bible tells me so, over and over and over. To me, it's very clear as to be unmistakable. And yet, we can't escape the fact that the Bible also says that whoever will come to the Lord and believe and trust in Him will be saved. Moses explains to the Israelites, who were very rebellious, he explained to them that they have a choice. They can choose the Lord who brings life, or they can choose other gods and perish. And Moses' direction to them is, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore, choose life. In other words, they have a choice to make. This choice is real, and they will be held accountable for it. Likewise, Joshua tells his people, choose this day whom you will serve, the living God or pagan gods. So we are accountable for choosing or rejecting God while God sovereignly chooses his elect. This is what God teaches us. So both sides of this coin are the truth. And yet our understanding may not be full and complete this side of heaven. Your salvation unto eternal life was determined by God the Father before the foundation of the world, secured by God the Son at the cross and by His resurrection, and sealed as a guarantee by God the Holy Spirit. If that doesn't bring joy, knowing that we are chosen, sealed, and kept by God for His great purposes, it should. Which leads us to our next point, keeping, God's keeping. We're going to go back to John 17 in a minute, and we'll see what he says about keeping, because he has much to say about it. But first, I want to take a little detour uh, into the Old Testament, where we read, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you. I'm sure you have heard this famous, famous portion of Scripture many times. Uh, they're the words that our Lord gives to Moses to instruct the high priest Aaron and his sons to say as a blessing over the people of Israel. It's found in Numbers 6.24. The Lord bless you and keep you. So I think we, we all have a pretty good idea what it means to offer a blessing to people or to ask for the Lord to bless someone. To bless, more or less, is to ask for, uh, a fa ask for favor to be on uh, a person or on people. So we understand that. We, we, we get that. To keep. But to keep, what does it mean for the Lord to keep us? Does God actually keep us? 
If so, in what way does he keep us? Well, does he keep us for something or from something? Or both? Or who or what or where does he keep us from or for? There are many aspects to God's keeping. Is it something in the future? Is it once we become a Christian or is it from the time we are born? And a lot of questions. I'm asking a lot of questions. Here's one. Why would Almighty God, the holy and righteous creator and sustainer of all things, who is infinite, unmeasurable, holy, pure, righteous, who is all the things that we are not, why would he ordain to keep us? People racked by sin and self-destruction. Why? Well, let's see now what John 17 says about keeping. What does Jesus say? We pick it up in verse 10. And Jesus prays, all mine are yours. He's talking about God, the Father's chosen people. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth." So we see here, there's a clear vision for Jesus to pray for our keeping, that we would be kept. Now, there are two main forms of the word keep in the Bible. Uh, the one from uh, number 624 is Hebrew, the Hebrew word, it's taken from shamer, which, which is the one in, in the numbers, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Greek word used here uh, is tereo, which is the one here. Both are verbs, and they are meant to uh, uh, convey the aspect of guarding or observing, watching, protecting, preserving, to retain and, and restrain, save life or, or attend to very carefully, and to, to take care of as a parent does. And so both of those words have the same connotation. I share that because uh, if you happen to come across and see that they are actually uh, a different form of the word keep, or keep is uh, derived from a different form, they have the same connotation. Jesus, in this passage that we just covered, he makes two requests, and he recites two facts regarding God's keeping. He asks the Father to keep Christians in his name and to keep them from evil. These are prayers of request, or, or more accurately, requests that the 
to have us kept from the evil one, meaning Satan. And then he states as fact that he has kept them and guarded them. There's that aspect of protecting and guarding. We are secured by him forever. We're not secured by ourselves or our own doing. We are secured by him. We are kept by him. And I can think of no greater attribute of, of God than his perfect love for us imperfect people. I can think of no greater outgrowth of God's love for his people than the fact that he keeps us. I mean, it's, it's one thing for to love to love us uh, if we were perfect and, and winsome. But it's quite another to spend any bit of time with us and then still love us. Um, I hate to say it, but we aren't all that lovable. We tend to be pretty self-absorbed, patient and stubborn, selfish and prideful and foolish and short-tempered. I guess I probably should put the sledgehammer away, but you get the idea. Yet when our all-knowing, all-loving, infinite Father grabs hold of us and we eventually respond to his call, he does not let us go. Think of that. He does not let us go. He does not let us go. I know I've got about another 15 minutes left, but nothing I preach today will be as profound as the fact that Almighty God does not let go of you. He keeps you for himself, and he keeps you in mind at all times. He keeps you for salvation, despite your past sin and my past sin, despite our ongoing sin, God holds onto you and I. Okay, the third point. Third point we'll highlight today and is emphasized in John 17 is unity. So we have God's election. In his wisdom, he has elected or chosen sinners to be saved from his wrath. This leads us to be for him to keep us and protect us and guard us from the enemy. This leads us to a unity that we have in God's electing, keeping, and guarding. In his prayer here, Jesus implores the Father to keep believers so that, so that they can be unified. And being unified in our faith in Christ is vital for a number of reasons. But the ultimate reason is stated here in John 17. It is so that we reflect the unity that exists in the Trinity. This unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to reflect that in our unity. And the reason that that is so important is so people will know Jesus is God and that he came from heaven to earth to love and save his people for eternity, that the Father sent him. Verse 11, the second part of verse 11 says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. You see that he is saying the Father and the Son are one. 
Well, this flies in the face of, <laughs> of many people on the religious spectrum or spiritual spectrum who deny the deity of Jesus. Yet Jesus says many times, many, many times, he is God in the flesh. He's not hiding it. Not only is God in the flesh, but he and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus tells Philip. D.A. Carson, he explains that within this oneness, the Son and the Father both are fully and truly God, and yet they have distinguishing roles. There is one God, this is clear in Scripture, and yet the unique relationship between the Son and the Father is reflected in three ways, Carson says. First, Jesus claims to be utterly dependent on his Father. Utterly dependent on his Father. If you have your Bibles out, let's turn, stay in John, but we'll turn to John chapter 5. Go to John chapter 5. Here the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus because he heals a man on the Sabbath, and then he makes statements giving, <clears throat> excuse me, giving him equality with God. Jesus responds in verse 19, chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus responds with this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. This should seem odd at first. How can Jesus be fully God, and at the same time, he can do nothing by himself? Well, the book of John stresses Jesus' claims of deity right from the start. The Word was God, verse 1-1. And his statements of being God are recorded throughout the book. Uh, just two examples, are eight, if you want to write them down, 858. Chapter 8, verse 58, and chapter 20, verse 28. So we cannot dismiss this. Jesus is truly and fully God. And yet, his role is specified here within the Godhead. Within the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus can do only what he sees the Father doing. Huh. And then Jesus reiterates this in chapter 5, going down a little further, verse 30, where Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, in John chapter 8, verse 29, we read these words from Jesus. In 8.29 we read, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Jesus, while being fully and truly God, is dependent on his heavenly Father. Second, Carson says, Jesus' dependence on his heavenly Father is utterly unique. Going back to John 5, look at the second part of verse 19. It says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. 
This is not a casual statement or, or a half-truth. It's not as if Jesus does a few things that the Father does. He doesn't occasionally get it right or even do most of the things his Heavenly Father does. No, Jesus says whatever the Father does, he also does. That means always, everything, 100%. There's no lapses, no gaps, no errors. And so when he gives this promise two verses later, we can trust it. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. We can trust it. He does whatever his Father gives him to do. Carson sums it up. He says, in short, Jesus does the kinds of things that only God can do. Yes, this is utterly unique. It absolutely is. Man can't do whatever God can do. We are limited, but Jesus is limitless. And so the third way that this unique relationship between father and son is reflected, Carson says, is because it is bathed in unfathomable love. We're staying in John 5 for a moment. We read in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. This unifying love is voiced and expressed throughout the book of John. John 3.35 says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Has given Him all things. And the Son does all things that the Father gives Him. Well, this is not a one-way love. The Father loves the Son, yes, but the Son also loves the Father equally. We see this unity anchored in love in John 14, 31. John 14, 31 says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. In a few verses earlier, Jesus tells his disciples they will see him again in person after he dies. This is a reference to the resurrection. In that day, Jesus tells them in 1420, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. When we understand that the Father and the Son are one, this isn't some abstract truth best left in the dusty pages of, of an old book. This is a truth that reverberates throughout eternity. It's the guarantee that God himself was in every bit walking on earth with the Son, in the Son. And the Son himself was in every bit fully capable of securing eternal life for us by dying on the cross to pay for our sins and resurrecting to new life. And God Almighty himself, the Father and the Son, are every bit sitting on his throne in heaven preparing a place for you and I who trust in him. All of this is grounded in the love that the Father and the Son have for fallen people. Before we turn and beg God to forgive us, before we understand how much we have sinned and fallen short of him, before we have proclaimed any bit of love for God, he first loved us with an everlasting love. It's a miracle. 
absolute miracle. Given the sinful, wretched state that we live in, but his love pulls us into himself. And this is where he has mercy and not casting us out immediately because of our sin. As he pulls us into himself, it's where he has grace to forgive all of our sin and then give us what we really don't deserve, which is a pure and righteous home with him in his presence forever. So when we come back now to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, we see that he prays for this unity. Remember, he is praying this prayer in the midst of his 11 apostles who have just uh, shared the Last Supper with him. He's been pouring in his teaching to them about the time when he is about ready to go. And now they are just about to head to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be betrayed and arrested. And this is where the outside, within their hearing, Jesus prays. And he prays for himself, for his Father and his disciples. And now he aims the prayer to the future. In verse 20 of John 17, we see this. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the 11 apostles there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning all believers for all time, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that? True Christians are to be one, united together in every way, just as the Father and Son are. We are to mirror their unity, or His unity, by our unity. In fact, when we are unified, we do reflect God on earth. We reflect God's glory on earth, even when we are unified. And this is critical because this unity among believers shows the rest of the world the truth of Jesus' deity. God's unity, our unity, God's glory, and Jesus' true identity are all tied together. They are interwoven. And Jesus continues in verses 22 and 23 of John 17. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that, may, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is why, brothers and sisters, we must be unified. This is powerful. We must not divide over insignificant, inconsequential things. We must be perfectly one as Jesus prays. This incredible faith that God has given us, it's a, as a gift, this gift of salvation, we do not deserve. It's been lavished upon us by a holy, pure, and loving God 
This must bring a unity among us that the world does not know. And it does. We, we see that. We, we aren't unified perfectly. We know that. But that's, that's our aim. We strive for that. And even in our uh, inability to be perfect, perfectly unified, the unity that we do have stands out. There, there's nothing on earth like it. We're not divided by gender or skin color or nationality or personality or uh, our bank accounts or where we come from, our standings, our different backgrounds. No, we are knit together by one common thing. Jesus Christ pulled us up Hold us up out of the filth and stench of sin. He ignored our rebellion. And he said, come to me and I will make you clean. This profound act creates a new person creates a new person out of you and me. And it unites you and I with every other fellow Christian on earth. You can go anywhere in the world and have this instant bond with Christians. I don't know if you've had the privilege to experience that. Uh, I have, and it's astounding. Uh, I was able to to be among Christians in Haiti and Ecuador for uh, serving there just for short periods of time. And I met people and I worshiped, worshiped the Lord with them just the same as if it were here. It was awesome. I mean, aside from the surrounding squalor in Haiti or the uh, lobster-sized tarantulas in Ecuador, uh, it would have been no different than being in our sanctuary here. It was tremendous. So this is why Jesus prays for our unity, because it is so powerful, because it's unlike anything. It shows the world something that it cannot get any other way. It shows the world that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one who came to redeem us, and so our unity, brothers and sisters, shows his unity. Our unity of faith in him and our love for each other is a clear display of God's love for us. But more than that, it's a display of the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Look again at verse 23, and I'll close with this. John chapter 17, verse 23. It ends with the son praying to the father that his people would be unified so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Even as you loved me. How did the father love the son and the son love the father? 
from before time began. Their unity of love, this, this love for each other, that unity is the most important thing. And this love within the triune God is the same love as God has for us. There is no better love. Remember how this message began? I asked what was your first thought after hearing, the Father loves you as much as he loves the Son. As we prepare for communion, I want you to take that statement. I want you to dwell on it some more this week. Think through the ramifications of this love. Think deeply about how thankful you are to be one of his beloved children, chosen before the creation of the world, despite, despite every flaw and imperfection. Saved from our sin by a suffering Savior, the Son of God, who obeyed his Father perfectly out of their mutual love, the same love he has for you and I. So when you leave today, I encourage you to try to find somewhere quiet. Turn off the radio in the car. Turn off the TV. By all means, turn down your phone. Put it in a different room. Then consider how this knowledge of our God's love motivates you. Consider how it moves you toward humility, toward peace and toward gratitude. Consider that he has adopted you into the body of believers, known as the body of Christ. We are all members, sinners saved by grace. None of us is perfect, yet he deemed to save us anyway. May this motivate each one of us to love each other, to set aside petty slights and inconveniences, and to be perfectly one so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus and Jesus gave himself to us. May all glory be to Christ, our Savior. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.